Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It's been a rather turbulent few weeks in international politics, and today's podcast with Tom Wright of the Brookings Institution uh, is an effort to try and uh, explore and explain the nature of the politics there. The podcast explores all of the various relationships uh, in Europe, and in particularly, we discuss with Tom the rising populist politics that apparently is gripping Europe today in Italy, in Germany, and of course the politics of Brexit in the United Kingdom. The turbulence is apparent, and Tom helps us to explain all the actions taking place there. Tom is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy. Both of these are at the Brookings. Tom has done research on Europe and, uh, um, and Trump American foreign policy, and he's recently published a book, All Measures Short of War, with Yale University Press. So let's join in with uh, this uh, discussion between uh, Tom and myself as we explore the crises in Europe. Well, welcome, Tom. It's a real pleasure to have you with us again, actually, uh, but this time on the questions of Europe. It's great to, uh, to have you here. So let me start with uh, this kind of broad question. Uh, many of our colleagues have focused on the implications of America First. You were one of the first people in to examine this. Um, and, and Trump's uh, focus on reversing uh, the actions of his predecessors. So we, you know, Trump withdraws almost immediately from the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Then he withdraws from the Paris Agreement on climate change. He withdraws from the Iran Agreement. Uh, Zachary Carabell of uh, uh, River Twice Research wrote a piece not that long ago in Foreign Policy, and he said, Trump likes to break things first. He likes the idea of tearing down old bridges without building new ones first, or at least he likes to talk as if that is what he likes. Now, Carabell says that's okay, I mean, that approach uh, to a policy, as long as Trump has something to replace the current liberal order. Tom, you've written extensively on, on Trump's foreign policy. Um, is there anything that he has to replace the current American foreign policy? No, I mean, I don't think he has, uh, you know, an idea of an alternative order or sort of mutually beneficial equilibrium, you know, that he wants to uh, introduce. I mm -hmm. think he, he just wants to tear down sort of what's there, and he's always believed that, you know, the U.S. is competing with allies as much as with other countries, and he wants to try to use, you know, American power in a more unrestrained way for sort of narrow economic advantage. Um, mm -hmm. And I think if he pointed out to him, you know, that, that that one consequence of that could be geopolitical instability and the Middle East, East Asia, or Europe, I think he would just shrug his shoulders and say, why is that my problem? You know, the, mm -hmm. like these countries have been, you, you know, benefiting from, you know, the U.S. taxpayer for too long, so we're just going to cut loose. I think that's how he would see it. I, I don't think he really, I mean, he doesn't 
think holistically or sort of strategically in the traditional sense of the term, you know, about America's role in the world or anything. Mm-hmm. I don't think he cares much about that. So, um, you know, so I, I think, you know, if you're looking or if anyone is looking, you know, for sort of a secret plan, either for from him or from some of his, you know, closest sort of advisors or, or boosters, I, I, don't, I don't think we're going to find anything. Really? So, so um, he doesn't think, for lack of a better term, he doesn't think in traditional geopolitical kinds of terms, uh, if I understand you correctly. I mean, to the extent he sees the world out there, it's largely a world uh, fraught with competition, particularly on the economic side. That's, that's how he leads himself into discussions with those around, leaders around him. Yeah, I think a couple of things bother him and have always bothered him. It bothers him that the U.S. provides security for other countries mm-hmm. and without sort of exacting a massive fee for doing so. So I think he's always had a problem with that. And and he's virtually one of the only people to, to frame it in that way. And then um, he also has a problem with trade with other countries. Um, as you know, you know, since World War II, the U.S. is basically the global consumer, or certainly the Western consumer, um, and has run these large sort of trade deficits, partly due to the role of the dollar and other things. He, he's always had a problem with that. He, he basically believes that in goods, you know, the U.S. should be running a surplus, and, um, and he views uh, trading arrangements as deficient as a result. And so I think that's sort of what he wants to remedy. You know, um, of course, you know, everyone will point out that a trade deficit isn't necessarily bad and, Mm -hmm. you know, and that the U.S. is the global consumer for a reason and it means the U.S. economy is doing well and we can buy stuff from other places and that's why there's a a deficit, but it doesn't really matter to him. And so he's he's sort of waging this, you know, campaign now on on at least two fronts, um, you know, to sort of rework uh, you know, the international order, I guess. And, um, you know, we don't know if he'll succeed or not, but I don't think he can really be talked down from it. I see. But, but you know, the spillover obviously goes beyond uh, the trade environment, right? Because, um, you know, we saw him uh, in, on display last week um, in terms, or recently, in terms of the NATO summit, and then a visit to uh, a visit to Prime Minister May in the UK, the Helsinki summit with Vladimir Putin, uh, and yet the policy we've never seen policies like that. Not just with uh, here, we're not talking trade. Here we're talking, you know, kind of geopolitics, right? NATO summit. Um, uh, May, of course, struggling with. The man in quotes the mandate uh, to extricate um, uh, Great Britain from uh, from the European Union, and then of course the the uh, geopolitical summit, of course, being Russia U.S. relations. I don't quite see how that all plays out if he's looking at trade trade balances. Right. Well, I mean, he's you, no. You're you're right. I think. I mean, the NATO. I mean, they're, they're sort of separate for him. You I know, see. he's he's pushing on NATO and on the defense spending side, and he's also pushing 
very aggressively on the trade side. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think, you know, he's doing so in a way that's very destabilizing. You know, he doesn't really either, like, have any... He doesn't care about the history of any of this or why the U.S. is in Europe. You know, he only really sees the problems of that. And so I think for him, uh, he, you know, he thinks that all of this is, is just a big... Uh, con job on, mm -hmm. on on the U.S. I mean, that's been his consistent message since the 80s. And I think what we're seeing now is he's really letting loose on that. You know, he's no longer constrained by members of his cabinet or his team. Right. He's ordering around, um, you know, Pompeo and Bolton to implement his his views. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's a sort of grand design. You know, I don't think they really... Um, I think his team in general have no understanding of the global economy or what an alternative trading system would look like. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, he, he famously is obsessed by, you know, the industries of the 50s, like cars and steel and aluminum and everything, and totally oblivious to artificial intelligence and services or, you know, any of the sort of newer technologies. Uh, parts of yeah. national economic technologies or just even services. You know, he's He's very fixated on goods, goods. And manufacturing. Yeah. And manufacturing. Yeah. So, um, you know, so I, I think, you know, I think we can, we shouldn't read too much into, um, I, I think it's really important to take him seriously and to know what he thinks. I think it's also important not to, you know, come up with, you know, uh, not to ascribe to him a very sort of sophisticated alternative approach, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that he may not have. And he's just, mm -hmm. he's just pushing what he's pushing on. There was a comment I heard from someone the other day that said this, um, that, you know, one major ally had said, you know, that, that, that their leader has met with Trump five or six times, and they said they haven't had five or six meetings, they've had the same meeting five or six times. <laughs> uh, you know, that he just, he just will repeat what he says at the beginning. There's no building on any of it. He has his core problems with um, with the international system, and he just, you know, keeps making the same complaints again and again. Well, particularly given this pr previous uh, trip to Europe and then the, uh, the finale, which is, of course, the Helsinki summit, what, uh, what does one then take from his efforts to backtrack, at least in some manner, uh, on uh, some of the original positions, most of them heard you know, well, not not only, well, Helsinki, for for instance, where he seemed to most dramatically backtrack, but even with respect to um, uh, his... How did he backtrack back in Helsinki? Well, I mean, his efforts to try to explain statements he made, Tom, uh, where, right. you know, suddenly right. uh, wood turns in, into wouldn't, and, and, you know, efforts like that. That's what I mean by backtracking, Right. At least verbally. Yeah, I think he was trying to. Yeah, I mean, I think when he faces pressure, he, you know, really serious pressure. Sometimes he tries to backtrack or patch things up, but, um, you know, as best as he can. I mean, obviously, he doesn't want a caucus that's totally hemorrhaging support, um, and it looked like that might happen. Mm -hmm. um, but mm -hmm. very soon thereafter, you know, I mean, that was really the minimal. I think it was completely not credible as well the <laughs> explanation about saying wouldn't rather than would would yes um, and yeah and 
um, immediately after saying that, then it turns out that he's doubling down by inviting Putin back over to what you know over to Washington. Which I take it nobody so, around him, uh, least of which uh, some of his uh, intelligence people, had any idea that he had he had done this. Right, but there's, there's a very now famous video of Dan Coates, the <laughs> director of national intelligence, acting with incredulity when he heard about it on public stage. So. You know, no one really, um, nobody really had, you know, had any idea that that was agreed or really that anything else was agreed, but he seems to be pushing ahead. So um, I think the the interesting question is what the net effect of all of this is going to be, because mm-hmm. I think some people have fairly pointed out that, um, you know, that there's a lot of style to all of this. That there's a lot of rhetoric. Um, there's certainly some substance to it. Um, but um, how much is it really going to change, you know, day-to-day policy? I mean, I, I think it has changed day-to-day policy, but it's an interesting question, you know, about what is the tangible impact. You mean on American you know, policymaking? Yeah, on American policymaking. I mean, yeah. will the United States be working hand-in-glove at Russia now, or is yeah. it still too weak to sort of yeah. pull that off? Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess we'll sort of find out. Um I mean, I think it is pretty impactful, but, um, but you know, we'll, we'll see exactly to what extent, I guess, in the coming months. Well, and, and, you know, obviously some of his efforts to repair the, uh, at least some element of the damage on, on NATO, but I wanted to focus a little bit more on his, you know, his, as a kind of example of, of him going way out uh, on a limb, which was the... Um, uh, interview he gave to the Sun in uh, in yeah. London prior to meeting with May, which really, in effect, I mean, he directly said that he had told her how to deal with Brexit, but she had not followed him, and moreover, then yeah. praised and, and then praised yeah. our good friend Boris Johnson, who had quit. Yeah. So, so well, the British were really the British were floored by that interview. I mean, they had no idea he'd given that interview, and is that right? The setting was. You know, yeah. The, I mean, he. Um, they have the dinner. Uh, uh, the very um, uh, at. Um, sorry, I'm blanking on the name of it, but at Churchill's um, residence. Uh, Windsor, home. you mean? Uh, no, 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 oh, no. Yo, um, oh, the, sorry, his. Uh, yeah, yeah, his home. And um, and they had this uh, beautiful dinner. Right. And there were speeches uh, given. And uh, at the end of the dinner, near the end of the dinner, it became um, obvious um, that, uh, you know, that he had given this interview because the editor of The Sun started to, um, uh, the Blenheim, uh, at Blenheim, Blenheim. Uh, that he Castle. started yeah. to, yeah, um, yeah that, uh, that uh, the editor of The Sun revealed that this interview had been done and so everyone was waiting for it to drop and the British side was, um, was flabbergasted that he had said this, and, and the end of the dinner was quite awkward because, of course, what he said was incredibly sensitive um, in British politics, given the week that it occurred. As you noted, you know, Boris Johnson had resigned. Yep. David Davis had resigned precisely because they said that Theresa May had sold out the country on Brexit. And then the President of the United States comes in and says that he believes that uh, she did sell out, you know, and got a really bad deal, and that he was going to pull the trade agreement, you know, and uh, because he he didn't think it would work under under that sort of plan, 
and he praised Boris Johnson. Right. So yeah. it was as um, a direct interference as you could imagine uh, in British politics, and it really angered um, the British side. Of course, the next morning, then they they all basically, um, effectively, collectively uh, lied about it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he said he had never really said any of this, and that he had praised her even though it was on tape and she sort of, you know, pretended that he was telling yeah. the truth, that he hadn't really said this stuff and he actually really supported her. Yeah. And they proceeded from there. But I think it was a very, you know, it was a catastrophic sort of visit and it really showed that US-UK relations are in very, uh, are in a bad state. You know, that they, yep. he, he, a lot of focus is on his relationship with Merkel and with others. Um, but actually, the the relationship with the UK is is um, is, is on a downward trajectory, uh, mainly over you know their sort of very tough position, the US tough position on trade and yeah. economic issues, mm-hmm. and also just a total disinterest really in Brexit or anything, you know, or a- any of the major issues surrounding it. Well, yeah, let's look a little bit closer. I mean, there's uh, into Europe because there's certainly turmoil though. You've just been talking about uh, the UK and their efforts to try to deal with the consequences of this referendum on leaving. But, you know, the and looking principally at Western Europe, we know that there are illiberal governments in uh, Hungary and in the Czech Republic, etc. But I want to have you focus a little bit more on the kind of Germany, Italy, France aspects, less so French, mm-hmm. but certainly Germany, Italy. The politics look uh, dreadful there. I mean, the coalition barely holds together on the German side. Italy, of course, has elected a, uh, a populist government um, of two stripes. I'm not quite sure how one kind of puts it all together. I mean, uh, and of course, as we've just talked about the chaos uh, of Brexit, how do we explain all of this uh, in terms of of Europe? What's going on? Well, you know, the, Europe has problems that are totally independent of Trump. Right. And, oh, of um, course. Uh, as you, you know, and uh, these started really about ten years ago with the financial crisis, which mm-hmm. revealed sort of the fundamental flaws in the euro um, system, um, and they've. Uh, dramatically increased since. So, by my count, Europe has sort of seven or eight major sort of existential problems or challenges. Um, there's the original Euro crisis uh, vulnerability, mm-hmm. which has gone away. Um, there's the Russia-Ukraine issue, which has been very damaging. There's the whole question of democracy in Central and Eastern Europe and the mm-hmm. pressure that that's come under mm-hmm. as sort of the rise of populism. So that's a third. Then there's the migration issues in the south and the sort of the collapse of the system in the Middle East, which um, is a fourth. Related to that, there's Turkey and, and the total turnaround in Turkey from mm-hmm. compared to 10 years ago and the rise of authoritarianism. And then we have Brexit. Um, you know, so there's just a lot. And then, of course, Trump. And, and so there's a long list of, of problems, and I think it's really unclear, you know, how this is going to turn out. I mean, European officials in private will freely acknowledge that they're very worried about the future of the EU. Um, there's a there's an optimistic view um, that we're, you know, many of us are hoping for, which is that Macron 
uh, has a set of bold proposals that he'll convince Germany to go along with it, that Europe will respond to Trump and these challenges by being more united, by deepening their cooperation. And But to be honest, that's, you know, that's only one possibility, and it's probably not an over 50% probability either. You know, it's, I mean, there are many difficulties with that scenario, not least of which is that the Germans are not keen on the French vision on the economic side. Right. And then Europe as a whole is quite divided on all of these issues. Um, so one could easily imagine Macron sort of failing to be able to deliver that. Um, so I think it's, you know, the future of Europe is really up for grabs in a way that it hasn't been before. And the populist wave, you know, while it abated a little bit last year, in the Dutch elections and and in um, the French elections, you know that it, it never it never went away, and it's back now, as we saw in Italy, potentially in Sweden in their elections coming up, and of course, you know in Germany as well with sort of the alternative for Deutschland, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of increasing uh, vote of that party. So, uh, so I think it is, um, you know, I, I think there is a big question mark. Um, that's not to say you, you're, the European project is doomed. It's just to say, you know, that it is sort of contingent on, you know, future, you know, events in a way we can't take it for granted or assume that it will just come through mm-hmm. um, all of these challenges. Well, I mean, uh, let me appeal a little bit to uh, Yasha Munk, right? His recent book, yeah. uh, The People Versus Democracy, uh, Why Our Freedom is in Danger and How to Save It. Obviously, you described uh, a little bit about the the so-called, his phraseology, democratic liberalism, right? So you've got these populist governments popping up, uh, at least in some of the European countries, and as you've just suggested, maybe yeah. in more than currently the case. But let me bring it to his other uh, area of concern, which was what he called undemocratic liberalism. And that's fundamentally the EU and the EU project. So can the Europeans, in effect, solve that undemocratic liberalism? I think it's going to be hard. I mean, if you, if you think about it from the point of view of a, of a voter in Europe, yep. say you're a voter in Italy, right, or in Spain, and you are unhappy with the current government and you want to change the policy um, because you want, you know, maybe more spending or, you know, more services or, you know, you want to, you, you want to change the economic policy. You mean like the Italians policy. most recently talking about? Yeah, like the Italians, yeah. you know, because that tends to be what drives people, of course, is economic policy. Sure. Um, at the, you know, under the current system, basically the center left and center right are all bought into the same set of constraints, mm-hmm. right, um, that they don't have much room for maneuver under Eurozone rules. And that creates, I think, a huge problem because, you know, there are certain words that politicians will never, ever say. And I think that the words that politicians will never say are, I can't do very much about this, we're just stuck. (laughs) Like everyone, (laughs) politicians always claim to have a plan, right? They always claim that their actions are going to transform the situation. They often exaggerate, but they'll never say, we can't do anything about this, we've got to accept it. And um, that's basically the proposition that's been put to European voters. That since 2008 or 9, with all of the dissatisfaction about the economic policy, 
that um, governments and, and opposition parties are going to the people and basically sort of saying we're going to continue what happened before because we're locked into these rules. And my, my view is that, you know, that that, that has been um, a, a very damaging uh, factor for the centrist parties because people, you know, are frustrated and they want change. And then you have, or some people do, and then you have the populists come in and say, we're going to blow through all those rules and ignore them mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, and not pay any attention because the deal and the restrictions are unreasonable and unfair. And uh, I think that's one of the main reasons why the centre-left and centre-right have been declining and having to coalesce, and why you've had these more radical alternatives emerge. And the problem is, of course, that the populists, you know, have a great message as long as they don't actually win, (laughs) you know, because once they win, um, then they have to figure out if they actually, you know, remain true to their critique um, or if they compromise. And this is the situation I think that the Italian government is in, mm-hmm. is that if it actually makes good on its promises, um, that it will run out of money very quickly and then it will um, have to decide whether or not to undertake very radical action that would incur you know, the anger of other governments. Um, and Syriza went through some version of this where they ended up having to capitulate in, in, in Greece. So... Um, but I think that's sort of the dynamic, you know, is, this, is that the, the populists are seen as offering a dramatic alternative and there's, uh, there's a significant constituency mm-hmm. um, that, that is open to that. Uh, and, uh, and clearly, you know, immigration then is also an issue as well alongside the economic issues, obviously. So, so okay, <laughs> take us to the, I mean, let's either look at the Italians as the most evident example, but others too. I mean, w- what happens when the rubber hits the road? I mean, uh, we saw them talking about exiting the euro, and uh, this is the Italians, and then they backed away uh, about, you know, kind of breaching the um, the uh, spending limits and then kind of playing with it and not doing it. I mean, where does this all end up? Is the EU capable of containing this or does it eventually somebody kind of rupture the system? I think the EU is capable. I mean, they're capable to some extent of containing it because um, there's a lot of real world constraints. You know, the bond markets Mm -hmm. um, are... Still uh, very intimidating. Um, you know, there's um, the, the, the rules are sort of hard to, uh, to break out of. Um, but Italy is bigger than Greece. You know, yes, much bigger. <laughs> they have more leverage um, than uh, the Greeks had. Um, and I think it's hard to sort of imagine the Italian government just behaving as sort of a responsible, mm-hmm. you know. Um, center-left government, you know, um, uh, or center-right, you know, government um, with sort of big sort of spending packages. So um, I think they they will need to deliver more. Um, So I think the rubber will hit the road at some point, and and I expect that to be a bit of a standoff. Uh, One thing, though, uh, that's sort of interesting and disturbing about some of the populists, um, including in Italy, is that when they get boxed in on the economic issues and if they find it hard to just break out of that Euro straitjacket, right. um, sometimes they compensate for that by being very hardline on issues like immigration. Immigration, yeah. And so um, 
uh, you know, obviously the, that government is very anti-immigration, um, just period. Um, but I think the fact that they may have less room for manoeuvre and economic issues makes it even more likely that they'll act aggressively in immigration, you know, or as much as possible, because that's sort of what they're delivering, you know, to their voters. And, right. and, and we've seen a lot of that uh, in the Italian case. So, um, but more more broadly, Alan, I think that, you know, the picture in Europe is really this, um, Europe is now pretty fundamentally divided, you know, on, mm-hmm. um, on some of these issues. And that Trump, uh, you know, regrettably perhaps is not actually isolated. You know, he has, he has support in, in certain countries like Italy, like in Austria, mm-hmm. Hungary, Poland. Um, you know, so he is, as Gideon Rackman pointed out in the Financial Times uh, a while back, you know, it's Macron and, and maybe Merkel who are actually sort of somewhat isolated. You know, it's Trump that seems to be spearheading this um, sort of movement that's, you know, that's actually gaining ground. And that actually makes the problem more acute, not less acute. You know, because he's he's seen by the Italians and by the Austrians and by others as 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 an ally in terms of his his um his political agenda. So, where does you know again, you know, does this mean in a way, um, we'll call it for the moment distraction that the populists, in order to to show their own communities that they're actually achieving the results, then they focus on, they can't focus on the economics or are unwilling to for the consequences that it might bring in the global, in global financial markets, then they then focus on the political. Is that, is that how you see this thing going and does it ultimately unravel as a result? Well, I think that they're, they're, I mean, at, at the moment, the, most of those governments are focused on being very hardline in immigration. You're right. And right. that's that's sort of the common sort of theme, and you know the Viktor Orban sort of view of immigration, uh, you know, and the, the leader of Hungary, you know, uh, illiberal democracy model. I mean, that vision is is gaining ground, I think, in Europe mm-hmm. on the immigration issue. Oh. And okay, I mean, that to me is very concerning, but I think it is al- it is also. Um, uh, you know, it's also not in decline, though. Like it's not. It's not that the Merkel vision is the one that seems to be seems to be under pressure, as we saw recently with the spat between the CSU and the CDU in Germany over over the immigration issue. Right. Um, so, right. so um, you know, and that isn't true. It isn't true in all of Europe, but it's, it's certainly true in 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 parts of it. So, I mean, in the end, I mean, I, I want to take it back out again for if just for a brief moment by by looking at uh, back with a little bit of Trump but saying okay so we've seen the G7 uh, operating and clearly uh, you know hindered by uh, you know leaders getting together and Trump doing what he does best I mean so how, how do they deal or do they deal with uh, Trump when it comes to things like you know, an open international economy, a rules-based order, climate change policy, um, uh, American power underwriting the system. Is that, you know, you know, do they hunker down and, you know, kind of 
maintain these basic uh, norms and principles, or um, uh, does does Trump kind of blow it up? Well, I think that you know that's the number one question, really, in every chancellery and foreign ministry around the world is how to deal with Trump and how to deal with the Trump administration. You know, as many people have noted, you know, most of the major strategies have failed. Like the Abe Macron strategy has failed to deliver benefits in exchange for flattery. You right. Know, they, they, they haven't really succeeded. The Merkel position of pushing back hasn't really worked. You know, the relations between the U.S. and Germany are quite poor and trending downward. Right. So that hasn't really worked. Um, so all of these different approaches have sort of failed. So everyone is talking about how, you know, what should they do? I think what we're sort of headed to um, is away from sort of a grand approach yeah. to Trump and toward more discrete strategies on particular issues. So you mentioned a few there. I mean, on trade, clearly the EU sees itself as a peer competitor of the United States and they're responding uh, to his tariffs by imposing their own tariffs. And they're trying to do so in a more politically adept way to maximize damage on, on his you know, political position to change his calculus. So I think that that's sort of what's happening on the trade side. On climate, you know, they have no, they're under no illusion that the Trump administration will do anything on climate. Um, but it's interesting that the first country to meet its Paris targets is the United States. <laughs> uh, so uh, yeah. the U.S. is actually abiding by the Paris Agreement, even though it's pulled out. And the reason for that is, of course, is nothing to do with Trump. It's the individual states uh, and cities have made progress on some of these issues. Right. So, um, so the French, for instance, their approach to climate, which they care a lot about, because it was the Paris Agreement, amongst other issues. Um, their approach is to work mainly with governors. Um, outside of Washington. You mean the subnationals? You know, yeah. Yeah, well, they're working with the individual states right. and um, try to get commitments, and that achieves some success. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are lots of different, you know, ways. But, uh, you know, I'll be honest, though, there's no, you know, that all that approach has its flaws. You know, it's not sure. sufficient. And, and uh, at the major sort of like, leader level, it's still a big problem, you know, how Trump reacts uh, to everything. And, of course, if we see future crises and events, that could be when the real, you know, reality of this is revealed to all of us in terms of what he will do or won't do. I see. So, but uh, just let me uh, uh, kind of follow on on the trade side. Uh, you said the the EU has kind of taken the lead, and it has, and it just, you know, uh, it, it just signed up a, a very significant, at least in principle, deal with Japan, um, a free trade arrangement. So that, uh, aside from pushing back on Trump um, vis-a-vis uh, the, this, this fight on tariffs, right, the EU is, is kind of developing, uh, advancing uh, a rules-based system notwithstanding Trump, right? Yeah, I think that there's still problems of ratification to some of those agreements. And, okay. you know, Europe definitely has problems on populism and anti-trade sentiments. Um, but you're right. I, I mean, I think that the, what we're moving, though, from 
I mean, it's an interesting moment we're in in trade because for the last 20 years, the debate has really been about free trade, good or bad. Right. And it's right. been determined by attitudes toward new agreements that are being negotiated or, or signed. Um, so, you know, I might say TPP is good, and then somebody who's, you know, concerned about globalization will say it's bad. But we're, what we're moving to now is a whole different argument about whether the protectionist agenda is good or bad. Mm-hmm. You know, so mm-hmm. is a trade war good or bad? Right. You know, it's not. It's not about should we negotiate TPP. It's about like, you know, is it a good idea to impose tariffs on German cars um, and with the retaliation that's going to come in after that? Right. Um, right. So we're we're sort of implementing the alternative, and um, you know, it's quite possible. It's not a foregone certainty, but it's possible that that would change the debate mm-hmm. because after decades of people not only seeing the cost of one policy and not the other, you know, we're now about to see the cost of both. <laughs> you know, we yeah. we already know the shortcomings of the trade, free trade model. We're about to find out <laughs> the price of the protectionist model. Right. Um, and, you know, it's an open question. How will people respond? You know, will they respond to EU retaliation on, on uh, against tariffs on cars by blaming Trump or by blaming the EU, you know, and doubling down and saying we're in a conflict. Uh, I don't know the answer to that. Okay, um, okay. I don't think anyone does, but but I think there's some chance that people will, you know, as they see the effect of these tariffs, will demand um, that their, uh, you know, that their representatives uh, return to a free trade agenda. Okay. Um, let me just finish up by by asking the question. I mean, you, you've kind of alluded to it that you, it's different politics now because of Trump. And I wonder, you know, if you're looking at the uh, the G7 leaders of the large Western uh, economies or the G20, which is, you know, uh, the uh, both the established powers but the large emerging market powers, whether they adopt in the face of Trump, something familiar in American baseball, which is called small ball. That is, they attempt, you know, smaller agreements. Clearly, uh, the Germans broke the, um, in the Hamburg summit, they broke uh, the, the requirement of consensus in the, in the leaders' communique, and that enabled uh, a number of them most of them, in fact, support, continue to support the Paris Climate Accord. And I wonder whether we're going to see, you know, a, a variety of these things where uh, certain, uh, smaller groupings are, are going to push forward on some of the global governance uh, issues in the face of Trump. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that's likely, maybe, and, and you know, you've done a lot of great work on, on, on that in terms of sort of the agenda, some of these summits and opportunities for for moving the ball forward. Um, I think, though, that, that that ultimately, while welcome, you know, doesn't offset yeah. the disagreements on the fundamental issues. And mm-hmm. where we are in those, I think, is, you know, basically we've got another two and a half years of this at least um, <laughs> unless something happens like he's impeached or something which I don't think, you know, is particularly likely. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a pretty long period of time. And, 
I think we need to be very lucky in that period of time to really avoid major external shocks mm-hmm. that could really disrupt this, everything. You know, so we could be lucky. <laughs> you know, it's quite possible. <laughs> so you're thinking financial crises or economic crises or even geopolitical crises. I mean, whatever comes. Yeah, along. the one that worries me the most is is a financial crisis or a real economic downturn, mm-hmm. but particularly a financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I think that this administration is singularly ill-equipped to deal with that. Okay. Um, uh, you know, they're basically almost entirely economically illiterate um, <laughs> in terms of the markets and the global economy. Yeah. The International Department of Treasury has sort of been hollowed out. I think Steve Munchen, you know, is, is probably the the... Treasury Secretary, who's least familiar with these issues in a very long time, mm-hmm. um, and um, if you think about his background at Goldman, he was sort of really just as a you know um, involved in the entertainment industry and and, uh, and movies. He wasn't you know just a very small segment of of the type of work that Goldman does. So um, so I think that and, and of course Trump himself is. You know, ideologically committed to tariffs and protectionism. Right. So, um, as we've spoken about many times before, you know, the big difference between the 2008-09 crisis and the 1929-33 crisis was not the initial shock; it was the response. And, right. And the 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 reason why all of us who, you know, support the various G seven G twenty processes and all of that, one, you know, thing that we always say is that you know, that worked in that case and that was a really big deal and, you know, that this cooperative response, you know, eased the pain mm-hmm. and helped more quick recovery. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, if that were to re- if some version of that were to recur, um you know, two things that are different. One is that the political goodwill is a lot less than it was the last time and the second is that we have Trump instead of uh, Bush and Obama, mm-hmm. you know, so um, so how do we think, you know, he's going to respond? So that's one scenario, and there's probably plenty of others, um, but we're, we are sort of very vulnerable now to external events, I think, in a way that's, um, because we can't count on, uh, on sort of a, a responsible, you know, approach to them if they occur. Okay. Well, I'm sorry we can't end on on a happy note, but uh, <laughs> Tom, I wanted to thank you for taking the time out to talk you, about uh, Europe great, and the international great system. Great, thanks. I look forward to next time. Hopefully we'll have more happy news to, <laughs> to talk about then.